Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 298 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about pet telepathy. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Many people feel like they have a real bond with their pets. Their beloved dogs and cats are sensitive to their owner's moods and know what they're feeling perhaps reaching out to give them special comfort in moments where the owner is sad or hurting. At times, it's like they know exactly what their owners are thinking, and some owners are convinced that that's literally true. They believe that they have a telepathic connection with their pets. Could this be right? How would this connection manifest, and what does the scientific evidence say? Well, that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, how do you want to begin today's mystery? By giving credit where credit is due, most of the research that we're going to be talking about today has been done by a British scientist named Rupert Sheldrake. He's researched more topics than just what we're going to be talking about today, and he has unique theories that he's explored to explain his research findings. But today, we're going to be looking at some of his research related to pet telepathy. Uh, We'll look at other aspects of his work in the future. Sheldrake was born in 1942 in England, so he's 81 years old today. Uh, He has a PhD in biochemistry from Cambridge University. He's done pioneering research in plant biology, including on plant hormones and apoptosis or cell death. But he began doing work in parapsychology, and he's done quite a number of experiments involving parapsychological phenomena involving animals and humans. He's also a Christian and belongs to the Anglican tradition, and since he's still with us, We may even be able to have him on the show in the future. Uh, The book that we'll be principally drawing on today is Sheldrake's book, Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home and Other Unexplained Powers of Animals. So you can get a copy of that for more information about what we'll be discussing today, as well as coverage of other studies about possible psychic phenomena involving animals. So what led Sheldrake to begin studying the question of whether pets may have a telepathic bond with their owners? Almost always, fundamental lines of parapsychological inquiry begin with spontaneous experiences that are reported in the field, and numerous people have reported phenomena that could suggest that their pets are reading their minds. As we'll see, many of these experiences may have purely natural causes that don't involve anything psychic, but some of them are harder to dismiss that way. In our background section today, we'll look at a selection of reported experiences, and then in the reason perspective, we'll look at some of the experiments that Sheldrake has performed and what they've shown. We'll start with a reported field experience that could point to the involvement of pet telepathy. It's recorded in Sheldrake's book. When Peter Edwards arrives home at his farm in Wickford, Essex, his Irish setters are nearly always at the gate to greet him. Yvette, his wife, says they often wait for him for 10 to 20 minutes before he arrives and well before he turns off the road into his drive. She had taken this behavior for granted for years, simply thinking, Peter's coming home. The dogs have gone to the gate. Yet after reading in the Sunday Telegraph, 
about my research on dogs that know when their owners are coming home, Yvette began to wonder how the setters knew when Peter was coming. He worked irregular hours in London and did not usually let her know when to expect him. The dogs responded regardless of which way the wind was blowing or what vehicle he was driving. The Irish setter's abilities to seemingly predict the return of Mr. Edwards is far from unique. Here is an account from Teresa Preston of Suffolk, Virginia. Her husband was the captain of a U.S. Coast Guard boy tender uh, and would spend a lot of time at sea, and so he came home at irregular intervals. But their family dog, Jackson, uh, seemed to know whenever Mr. Preston was about to come home. And the dog was so reliable that Mrs. Preston started acting and making plans based on the dog's behavior. My husband would arrive home at odd hours. When the ship had come into port, Jackson would get excited, go to the door and want out. Most of the time he would go and sit at the end of the sidewalk, stationing himself to look in the direction he knew the car would travel. He got so good at this, I couldn't help but notice, and sometimes would use Jackson's warning to freshen my hair and makeup before my husband arrived. If I was cooking dinner and was at the point of deciding how many portions to cook or places to set for the meal, I would use his prediction and add accordingly. Another person who made plans based on what the home's dog did was an Irish nanny who worked for General Charles West, who was stationed in New York and whose wife was a vice president at Time Incorporated. General West explains, We lived on the fourth floor of an apartment building, and each of us arrived home at varying times from varying directions. Neither the nanny nor our small son knew when we were coming home, but 10 to 15 minutes before our arrival, our dog, Carrie, would get greatly excited, run to a front window, and stand looking into the street, winding joyously with her tail going like mad. Nanny always knew that one of us was about to arrive, and she always laughed that it was a great warning to clean up the child before the parent got there. And this was not an occasional happening. It went on day after day, week after week, for years. Now, sometimes dogs that had a way to get out of the house, like a doggy door, would actually go meet their owners at a bus or train station, like the Cairn Terrier that belonged to Helen Mither, who had a commute by bus to Liverpool, England. She would return on either the 6 p.m. bus or the 8 p.m. bus, but she never knew in advance which it would be. The bus stop was about a quarter of a mile away through a small wood. I never knew whether I would finish work in time to catch the earlier bus, but the dog always knew whether I was on it. If I was, he went to the door about 5.45 to 5.50 p.m., whatever the weather, and came across the wood to meet me. If I was late, he did not stir until about 7.45 and met me at the later bus. Dogs can also know when their owner is arriving by airplane. There are many stories of this kind from World War II, when some pilots were allowed to keep their dogs at airfields. For example, Squadron Commander Max Aiken, later Lord Beaverbrook, kept his Labrador at the base of Number 68 Squadron. Edward Wolfe, who served under him, told me, when the squadron was returning in ones and twos from an operation, his black Labrador, who would be sitting quietly in the mess, would get up and rush outside to meet his master. He always knew when Max Aiken was coming back. Not only are dogs reported to react a few minutes before their owner arrives, some dogs react when the owner is just getting ready to come home and hasn't yet made the journey. This was the case with Louise Gravitt's dog, BJ. 
Louise had an irregular schedule, and BJ's behavior was observed by her husband at home. As I leave the place I have been and walk to my car with the intent to come home, our dog BJ awakens from sleep, moves to the door, lies down on the floor near the door, and points his nose toward the door. There he waits. As I near the drive, he becomes more alert and begins to pace and show excitement the nearer I move to home. He is always there to poke his nose through the crack in greeting as I open the door. This sensing seems to be unlimited by distance. He does not seem to respond at all to my leaving one place and moving to another. His response seems to become apparent at the time when I form the thought to return home and take the action to walk toward my car to come home. And not only can some dogs sense when a person is planning on coming home, they can also seemingly sense when a person is planning on coming home and then changes their mind. For example, Red Boot Spruit of Utrecht Holland's parents' dog was in the habit of waiting for him when he was coming over to their residence. But... One day, my mother called me and asked if I had planned to visit them the day before because the dog waited for me. I had planned to visit them, but I changed my mind on the way. It was at the same time that our dog was waiting for me. My mother told me the dog got confused after 15 minutes when I didn't arrive. It ran into the house, and after some minutes, it ran again to the gate. After about half an hour, it looked as if the dog had forgotten about it. Dogs also seem to know when someone is coming to visit that they haven't seen in some time, such as coming home from a vacation or coming to visit after a significant absence. This happened, for example, with Queen Elizabeth II of England herself. When Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II visits her estate at Sandringham, England, the staff does not need to be told when she is approaching, because her gun dogs have already alerted them. All the dogs in the kennels start barking the moment she reaches the gate. And that is a half a mile away, said Bill Meldrum, the head gamekeeper. The queen is famous for her affinity to her animals, and training her gun dogs is one of her favorite pursuits. However, dogs don't just react when someone they like is coming home. They also react when someone they don't like is coming home, and they can react negatively. John Ashton, for example, had a friend who disliked dogs who used to visit him at his home in Lancashire about once a week. At first, his German shepherd Rolf, usually a good-natured dog, showed no unusual behavior. After a few months, my friend Clive visited me one night, and about ten minutes before he arrived, Rolf was at my garage, waiting and growling and had to be restrained when Clive got there. I can only assume that Clive had smacked or kicked him away on his previous visit. After this night, I always had to go to the garage and meet Clive and restrain Rolf. He always knew ten to fifteen minutes before Clive's time of arrival. Dogs also seemingly can tell the intentions of a person when they're coming over. For example, the Oxfordshire vet veterinarian Christopher Day reports on a Springer Spaniel that belonged to his mother-in-law that would react positively if he was coming over for a social call, but negatively if he was coming over for a veterinary visit. The dog used to know whether I was visiting socially or whether I was visiting as a vet. She would be all over me and whooping with delight if I was visiting socially. But if I visited as a vet, she was hiding behind the boiler. There was nothing I could see which would give her a clue that I was visiting as a vet. And anyway, she would have made the decision to hide before I came into the house. She got it right every time. I used to visit quite often, pop in and do all sorts of things. Although as a vet, I'd visit very rarely. 
and I didn't just visit as a vet because the dog was ill. Sometimes it could be routine things. But the dog knew when I was on duty and when I wasn't. So it seems like some dogs are quite sophisticated in their ability to anticipate people's arrival. Most dogs anticipate the arrival of one or more family members, depending on who they're emotionally bonded with. But they can also anticipate the, the arrival of someone they don't like. And they can tell whether the person arriving is going to do something they do like, such as paying a social call, or something they don't like, such as paying a veterinary call. Sometimes they react just five to ten minutes before the person arrives. Sometimes they react when the person is just about to set out on their homeward journey. And sometimes they seem to sense it when the person changes their mind in the middle of coming home and they can get confused. It doesn't matter how the person is coming home either. It could be by car, by bus, or by airplane. It doesn't matter how far away the person is coming from, and it doesn't matter if the person has been away a long time. How common is it for dogs to display behavior like this? Well, quite common. In response to appeals to the public to send in accounts of this kind of thing happening, Sheldrake had over a thousand people writing in with such experiences. That indicated that this type of experience seems to be quite common. But because these reports were self-selected, that is, the people had to choose to write in, it doesn't let us generate good statistics. So Sheldrake and his colleagues decided to do a telephone survey of 1,200 random households in four different communities, two communities in the UK, London and Ramsbottom, and two communities in California, Santa Cruz and Los Angeles. What they found was that a huge number of pet owners note, reported noticing their dogs displaying anticipatory behavior like this. The figures ranged between 45% and 61% of owners, with 45% of Santa Cruz dog owners reporting anticipating behavior and 61% of Los Angeles dog owners reporting it. The figures for London and Rams Ramsbottom were between these two, and the overall average was 51%, or basically half of dog owners reporting noticing the behavior in one or more of their dogs. However, the actual number might even be higher than that, as some dog owners may have just never noticed their dogs doing it. In particular, people who live alone and didn't have anyone watching the dog in their absence might never discover that the dog was reacting before they got home. If dogs do this, what about cats? Do cat owners notice their pets anticipating the arrival of family members? They do. Uh, not in the same numbers as dog owners, but yes, cat owners do report their pets responding to the imminent arrival of people, especially family members that they're attached to. For example, here's an account from Jean Randolph of Washington, D.C. My boyfriend gave me a kitten named Sammy for Christmas. Nearly every evening, my boyfriend would stop by my apartment after work. I always knew when he was coming because Sammy would sit by the door for approximately 10 minutes before his arrival. I had no way of giving the cat signals because I was never aware of the time my boyfriend would be coming over. He was in real estate and worked odd hours. I doubt Sammy could have heard his car as I live in the middle of a very noisy city in a high rise. When my mother visits, she says Sammy anticipates my arrival in the same fashion and I take the subway. Also, just like dogs, the behavior of some cats can be so consistent that humans can make decisions based on the behavior of the animal. This was the case with 
Brian Rocha, who had the habit of holding unauthorized parties for his friends in his boss's guest house in Nantucket, Massachusetts. And so he could have gotten fired if he got holding these parties. During my time as an undergraduate psychology student, I took a working holiday in Nantucket. The guest house in which I worked and boarded was inhabited by a Persian cat named Minu. Its owner, my employer, insisted that she had a psychic relationship with this cat, and that when she was driving home, the cat would growl for up to 20 minutes prior to her arrival. She often illuminated this fable with amusing recollections of her feline's psychic antics, and I regularly took to jesting with the residents about her unlikely stories. One night, however, unbeknownst to my absent employer, I held a small party in the guest house. When the party was in full swing, I noticed that the cat was acting rather strange. She was arching her back, as cats do, but also growling quite loudly like a dog. Given the gravity of being apprehended in the act of partying in my employer's house, I decided to heed the cat's warning and end the party. The guests were more amused by my superstition than by the cat's imitation of a dog. Sure enough, the cat's owner arrived home six or seven minutes later. The psychic cat had saved my job. I was still not convinced of the psychic nature of what had happened, and I took to observing the cat very carefully. It quickly emerged that Minu could sense the arrival of her owner even when she arrived in a different car or at an unusual time. Her predictions proved reliable even when her owner was returning to the island from the mainland by boat. I became so convinced of the reliability of the cat's predictions that I held several more parties to which the cat was cordially invited. On each of these occasions, the cat proved to be a fail-safe employer-arriving alarm. Also, like dogs, cats apparently can anticipate when someone is returning from a long absence. An example is that of a cat named Moody uh, that belonged to a woman in Switzerland named Elizabeth Biens after she moved to Paris, France. She reports, A few days later, Moody disappeared from my parents' home and was not seen again. Every two or three months, I came home for a visit, and the cat reappeared well-fed and cared for. My parents never learned where he was in the meantime. A few days after I had gone, he disappeared again. The biggest surprise came when I turned up for an unannounced visit one day. Some hours before my arrival, the cat showed up. My mother was puzzled and thought he had made a mistake. But then I showed up too. So the cat was apparently living elsewhere after Elizabeth moved out, but it would return every few months when Elizabeth came home for a visit. Another thing that cats can have, like dogs, is aversions to specific people, particularly those who have done things to them that they don't like, and they reportedly can detect the approach of people like that also. For example, a woman in Manhattan, New York, named Mosette Broderick, uh, tried to help her former professor by taking his cat, creatively named Kitty, to the veterinarian. Uh, she did this because when the professor himself took Kitty to the vet, the cat hated him for several days afterwards. So Mosette wanted to be helpful and volunteered to take the cat to the vet. But as the years passed, Kitty developed her disgust towards me to such a degree that my professor always knew when I was on the block. When I turned down 62nd Street from Lexington Avenue, some 200 feet and much noise away, Kitty would run and hide behind the stairs, which she only did when she expected my arrival. 
The curious fact here is that I would be out of hearing, sight, and smell range. In a crowded city like New York, she could not have heard me over the din of traffic. She certainly could not have seen me. Smell in winter in New York with the doors shut and the heat on in the house could also have not been a factor. I was also not always there on the same day or time, so schedule was not possible either. You said that cats aren't reported to display anticipating behavior as often as dogs do. How commonly is it reported? Based on his asking people to send in stories of such experiences, Sheldrake got about half as many cat stories as dog stories. He got about 600, well, he got 615 individual reports of cats displaying anticipating behavior, but he got 1,133 stories of dogs doing so. Uh, that would work out to cats being about 35% of the stories and dogs being about 65% of the stories involving these two types of pets. And when they did their telephone survey of 1,200 random households in four communities in the UK and California, they got similar numbers. Overall, 55% of dogs were said to show this behavior and 30% of cats were. Do pets like dogs and cats seem to show the ability to detect things telepathically other than when someone they like or don't like is coming over? Yes, uh, dogs and cats are also reported to be able to seemingly telepathically detect other things. For example, uh, they're reported to be able to detect the opposite of when a person is about to arrive. They're also reported to detect when a person is about to leave. Then there's something that all pets care about very much, which is when they're going to be fed. And they're reported to detect that, too, even when they have no natural way of detecting the owner's intention to feed them. And they're reported to be able to detect to detect when they're going to be taken from the home, like when dogs are going to be taken for a walk. For example, a woman named Sue Stickley reports. My dog knows if I'm thinking of going for a walk even when I'm in a different room. I've experimented with her over the years and have noticed that no matter what time of day it is, if I visualize us going for a walk, she immediately comes running and gets excited. The opposite can happen when cats are going to be taken to the vet. As you can imagine, cats might have a tendency to hide or escape through the cat flap or fail to come home when a visit to the veterinarian is imminent. And Sheldrake reports... We carried out a survey of the veterinary clinics listed in the North London Yellow Pages. We interviewed the vets or their nurses or receptionists, asking whether they found that some cat owners canceled appointments because the cat had disappeared. 64 out of 65 clinics had cancellations of this kind quite frequently. The remaining clinic had abandoned an appointment system for cats. People simply had to turn up with their cat, and thus the problem of missed appointments had been resolved. So 64 of 65 clinics, or 98.5%, reported that they frequently had owners cancel appointments because their cat suddenly vanished right before the scheduled visit. And the final remaining clinic had altogether given up on people scheduling appointments for their cats because of how much of a problem it had been. They just have to show up whenever they could get the cat. Now, you might wonder whether cats were tipped off by something the owners did, like getting out a cat carrier or cat basket, as they call it in the UK. But although there was general agreement that some cats do indeed pick up their owners' intentions, 
There were a variety of opinions as to how they might do it. A veterinary receptionist in East Barnett said, It is not always the cat basket. The clients know that once they produce the basket, there is not a hope in hell of catching the cats. So it is usually before the baskets have been brought out. People say they get home around 5.30 p.m. and the cat is always on the doorstep. But the day of the appointment, he is not there. I think they have definitely read their thoughts because the owner has not been in all day. So they cannot have seen that the owner is upset or behaving any differently. They say, I don't know why he hasn't come back for his tea. It is very odd. Now, there's a degree of interpretation here because cats can't talk, so they can't tell us why they just seem to vanish before a veterinary visit. But the fact that they are so commonly reported doing so is striking. Incidentally, we'll be covering the case of a pet that can talk later on, which will be quite interesting. All of the examples we've covered involve dogs and cats anticipating something that humans are going to do, arrive or leave, feed the pet, take it for a walk, take it to the vet. Do we have any reports of other kinds of apparently telepathic experiences? We do. There are also cases where dogs and cats seem to respond to telepathic contact from the owners, such as giving them commands. For example, here's a story from Jane Penny of Cornwall, UK. One day when my dog was sound asleep, I deliberately thought to myself, Wake up and bring me your big blue ball and we'll go and play in the garden. Maggers woke up, went over to his toy bowl and rooted around for the big blue ball, which he didn't like very much. Brought it to me and went to the back door. No, he didn't need to pee. One day toward the end of his life, he'd left all his toys all over the place and I was falling over them. I'm a bit unsteady, very arthritic. I didn't say a word. The poor dog was asleep, but thought how nice it would be if he could put his toys away. When I came downstairs, he was lying with his toy bowl in the middle of the living room floor with all the toys in the bowl. Cats aren't as good at obeying commands, but sometimes they do respond to their owner's thoughts summoning them. For example, here's a report from Pauline Bamsay of Port Talbot, Wales. And remember in listening to this one that what the British call a garden is what we in America call a yard or a lawn. When he is not around... I only have to think, come on home, Leo, if I feel he's been gone a long time. And within minutes, sometimes under a minute, he will appear, depending on how far away he is. He visits neighbors' gardens and also an old, disused community garden just to the rear of our garden. It is his hunting ground. If I am in the garden and thinking, where are you, Leo? He calls to me vocally as he approaches the garden. If I am in the house, he comes bounding in through the cat flap in the back door with a loud meow and even comes upstairs to find me. As I write this letter, I can see him on our garage roof lying curled up asleep. I thought to myself, there you are, Leo. Almost immediately, he woke up, stood up, and looked directly at me through the window, which is about 15 feet away from the garage. And after a moment, he turned and headed toward the community garden across the garage roof. Those are cases of pets responding to the thoughts of humans, but there is another reported kind of experience where humans seem to respond to the thoughts of their pets. This can happen, for example, when the pet is in trouble. Here's an example from Dolores Katz of Dimming, New Mexico. One day, while at work, it started to thunder and rain. As I worked, I became increasingly edgy, and then very agitated. Something was wrong. At this point, I will add that I never took time off from work. 
I asked my employer if I could take the afternoon off. I didn't feel quite right. On my way home, I knew Eric, my German shepherd, was in trouble. I knew he was bleeding. When I arrived home, I rushed to the back patio. The window was broken. Frightened by the thunder outside, Eric had hit the glass with his paw and had sliced off the front pads on the broken glass. He was bleeding very badly. I feel he needed me and called out the only way he could, telepathically, knowing I would come to him. This was a dramatic situation, but humans can also respond to something as simple as a pet wanting to come in. For example, cats can spend a lot of time out of doors, and not all of them have cat flaps to let themselves back in, so someone needs to open the door for them. But cats can spend a lot of time ranging away from home, and they won't just be there if you open the door at random times. So here's an account from Sonia Porter of Woking, Surrey. My husband, David, soon found that he could tell when Susie was outside in the garden wanting to come in. The first time this happened was one Sunday morning when we were in bed reading the papers. David suddenly said, Susie wants to come in, got out of bed and opened the bedroom curtains to find Susie sitting on the gatepost staring intently at the bedroom window. After that, I got quite used to David's going to the front or back door to let Susie in, even though I never heard her cry or scratch the door. David just said she fluenced him. We thus have quite a range of different types of telepathic experiences being reported with dogs and cats. Are dogs and cats the only type of animals the experiences are reported with? People do have other kinds of animals as pets. Yes, uh, they are, and such experiences are reported with other kind of pets. Uh, It doesn't seem to happen with all of them, but it does seem to happen with some, and which animals it happens with tends to depend on whether the animals are social and whether they form strong bonds with humans. For example, dogs are highly social. You know, they naturally live in packs and they form strong bonds with humans. So dogs have a lot of these seemingly telepathic experiences reported. Cats aren't as social as dogs, but they can form strong bonds with people. And so they have these experiences reported as well, just not as many. However, some creatures, like a lot of reptiles, are not social at all. In the wild, they live alone and only come together to mate. Uh, Mother reptiles don't even stay with their children. They just leave their eggs and lay their eggs and leave. And similarly, some creatures just seem incapable of forming bonds with humans. Sheldrake gives the example of stick insects, and I guess some people do keep stick bugs as pets, but they're not super affectionate. So these kinds of experiences aren't typically reported with reptiles and insects. It's usually mammals and birds that they're reported with. So they get reported with things like horses that people own and ride, or parrots that people have, Uh, parrots being an animal that can talk. So we're going to be looking at a seemingly telepathic set of experiences with a parrot in the reason perspective. All told, Sheldrake reports that we have evidence of apparently telepathic experiences with at least 27 other species. He says that there's evidence that many seem to display the ability to anticipate people's returns, and that's just based on his findings so far. But while all these experience reports are interesting, they still don't show that the experiences involve telepathy. So we need to consider the scientific research that has been done on this question. And before we do that, we'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Michael S., Jennifer P., Theodore S., Christine M., and Carl S. 
Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by delivercontacts.com offering top brand contact lenses at always low prices with free delivery visit delivercontacts.com and by the grady group a catholic company bringing financial clarity to their clients across the united states using safe money options to produce reasonable rates of return for their clients learn more at gradygroupinc.com so jimmy what theories are there about pet telepathy There are two primary theories. First, that there's nothing paranormal with these experiences at all, that they all have natural conventional explanations. And second, that something psychic is happening. However, here we need to consider another question. Is telepathy the psychic ability being displayed or is it something else? All right. So what can we say about pet telepathy from the reason perspective? You said that there are possible natural explanations for these experiences. So what would they be? Well, there are several uh, basic types of natural explanations. And as always, in any paranormal investigation, we need to consider the natural explanations first and only resort to a psychic interpretation if the normal explanations don't work. The first possible natural explanation is that the experiences are hoaxes, uh, that the people who report them are just lying. A second explanation is mental illness. That is, the people who report them sincerely believe what they're saying, but they're crazy. And the experiences are figments of the imagination caused by their mental illness. A third explanation is random chance, that these experiences are just coincidences and that they don't happen any more frequently than you would expect by chance alone. A fourth explanation is that they involve misperception, that is, people think they see them happening in front of them, but they're mistaken in how they interpret what they're seeing. How would the misperception theory work? What would cause people to misperceive these experiences? Well, it could be a number of things. Uh, First, it could be something inside the animal that makes the animal seem to display telepathy when it's really not that. For example, uh, perhaps the person comes home at the same time every day. And so the animal's sense of time tells it when the owner is about to come home. And so the animal goes to the door or the window to wait because of what time of day it is. Uh, Second, it could be some kind of sensory cue that the animal is picking up on that lets it know these things. Um, It could involve any one of the animal senses. It could involve vision or hearing or smell or touch or hypothetically taste, though it's hard to think of a good example of how that might work or some other animal sense. What about vision? What kind of visual cue might let an animal know someone's coming home? There could be several. Um, For example, if the person arrives, arrives home at the same time daily, the quality of the daylight could tell them it's time for the person to come home. You know, like the length of the shadows or how much yellow there is in the sunlight coming into the house. Or the level of your scent, which the dog can smell, will diminish with time after you leave the house. And the dog may know that when your smell level drops to a certain point based on how long you've been gone, that you're likely to return home soon. 
Or if someone in the house knows when the person will be arriving, they might speak or move in a way that tips the animal off to the fact the person will be returning. Or the animal might just see the person's vehicle approaching in the distance, even if no one else in the home does. And how about hearing? What kind of audible signals could the animal pick up on? It could be the phone ringing and the conversation that follows if the person calls to say they're coming home, or it could be the footsteps of the person approaching. You know, different people have different walking gaits and speeds, so the animal might hear that. Or it could be the sound of the person's vehicle. Uh, Different vehicles make different noises, and maybe the pet can pick up on the sound of the owner's vehicle, or, or maybe it's just any vehicle that makes a close approach to the home that causes the animal to react. And what about the sense of smell? Well, people do have individual scents, and people, uh, pets, are very good at picking up on them. That's why they sniff things so much. So your dog knows your scent, and your cat knows your scent, so maybe that's what's alerting them. They're smelling you coming from a distance. Or maybe it's the smell of the vehicle's exhaust that the animal is picking up on. Perhaps that's what tells it that you're approaching. Or maybe there's some kind of scent in the house that the animal associates with the person's arrival, like the smell of someone cooking dinner just before the person arrives. Or maybe we humans give off some kind of pheromone that we can't smell, but our animals can smell when we're anticipating a family member returning. And how about touch? Well, if someone in the house knows about the return and the animal's in physical contact with the person, then that person might move or squirm or otherwise communicate the return by touching the animal or through touching it. If those are possible sensory cues that could alert an animal that you're coming home, what do you make of all the other possibilities that could explain the behavior? They are not all equally promising. Uh, For example, I doubt that all of the more than 1,000 people who sent Sheldrake reports or who answered questions for the telephone survey were lying. Uh, Maybe some of them were hoaxing, but not that many. Uh, So that's not a good general explanation for these experience reports. The same thing applies to mental illness. They cannot have all been mentally ill. Uh, More promising than that are the random chance and misperception explanations for the experiences. Do you think that the misperception explanation experiences of the experiences are all equally good? No, uh, many of them just don't fit the reports we have. Uh, For example, many of the experiencers we heard from thought about and were able to rule out time of day considerations as explanations of what their pets were doing. They said that they were coming home at different times of day, not at a consistent time, and the animal was still reported to respond just before they arrived home. Similarly, the idea that the pet may be smelling someone or at least their vehicle as they approach only works if the wind is blowing in the correct direction and if the doors and windows of the residence are open, which they often aren't, especially when it's really cold and you have the heater running or when it's really hot and you have the air conditioner running, and which certainly doesn't apply if you're living in an apartment high up off the ground. I won't go through each of the uh, misperception proposals individually, but if you go back through them and compare them to the experiences that we heard about or just think about how likely they are to be the case, you'll see that they aren't all equally good. 
However, we can't provide evidence for pet telepathy in a scientific way just by studying spontaneous field reports. Instead, we need to do controlled experiments where we can eliminate these factors as possible explanations. So now we're going to look at some controlled experiments that were done with a dog named JT. JT was a male mixed-breed terrier who belonged to a woman named Pamela Smart who lived in Ramsbottom in Greater Manchester. When Pam would leave for work, she would leave JT at the home of her parents who were retired and home all day. Her parents noticed that just before Pam would come home, JT would go to the window and wait for her to arrive. This happened even after Pam lost her job and didn't have a regular schedule. Her parents told Pam about this behavior, but Pam was skeptical. Uh, She didn't think that JT was doing anything psychic. However, in April 1994, Pam read an article in the Sunday Telegraph about Rupert Sheldrake's work with animals, and she contacted him and volunteered to help. Sheldrake reports, The first stage in this investigation was the keeping of a log by Pam and her parents. Between May 1994 and February 1995, on 100 occasions, she left JT with her parents when she went out, and they made notes on JT's reactions. Pam herself kept a record of where she went, how far she traveled, what mode of transport she used, and what time she set off to come home. On 85 of these 100 occasions, JT reacted by going to wait at the French window before Pam returned usually 10 or more minutes in advance. When these data were analyzed statistically, they showed that JT's reactions were very significantly related to the time that Pam set off, as if he knew when she was starting to go home. It did not seem to matter how far away she was. Statistical significance is a concept that comes up all the time in scientific studies. It involves a measure of how likely the results of an experiment are to be due to random chance. I'm simplifying a little, but this will make sense. Because this comes up all the time in analyzing scientific results, we're going to take a few moments to explain the concept of statistical significance. Whenever you're looking at the results of an experiment, you need to consider whether the results were due to random chance or due to something else. You can express those odds as a percentage that they were due to random chance, and you can convert this into what's known as a p-value or probability value. If the p-value is high, then the probability that your results were due to random chance is high. But if your p-value is low, then the probability that your results were due to random chance is low. P-values always range between 1 and 0. So if your p-value is 0.9, that means there's a 90% likelihood your results are due to just random chance. If your p-value is 0.5, then there's a 50-50 likelihood your results are due to chance. And if they're 0.1, then there is only a 10% likelihood that they're due to chance. So the smaller the p-value, the more likely it is that you found an effect that isn't just due to chance. How low does the p-value have to be to consider the results notable? The conventional answer was provided by a man named Sir Ronald Fisher. Uh, He lived in the 20th century, and he was a mathematician, statistician, biologist, and geneticist. Uh, Fisher more or less arbitrarily picked a value of 1 in 20 as being 
significant. If there was less than a 1 in 20 likelihood that the results were due to chance, Fisher thought that was significant. Not proof, but significant. Mathematically, 1 in 20 works out to 0.05. So if results of an experiment have a p-value of 0.05 or less, scientists usually consider them to be statistically significant. Like I said, a value like that doesn't prove that the effect is real, but there is only a 1 in 20 chance that it's due to just randomness. And so scientists generally consider that to be statistically significant. What does that mean in terms of the fact that JT the Terrier went to the window 85 out of 100 times as owner Pam returned? When Sheldrake calculated the odds that JT would have gone to the window this many times when his owner was returning, uh, they calculated that it had a p-value of 0.0001. Well, 0.0001 is way below 0.05, so that's clearly statistically significant. It means that there was only a 1 in 10,000 chance that JT would have done this randomly. And in a, in a 1 in 10,000 likelihood that this was just due to random chance, well, that's a pretty strong indicator it's due to something else, like psychic phenomena, if you can eliminate the other possible causes. And since the experiment ruled out multiple natural causes for how JT could have known that Pam was returning, it looked fairly promising here. Still, this was just the first phase of the investigation that they did. They then did a second phase in which they didn't just keep a log of Pam and JT's actions. Instead, they videotaped JT, and they did more than 120 trials using the videotape method, including some control trials that I'll tell you about. As part of these, they sought to control for the most plausible natural things that could explain his behavior. They had Pam come home at different times of day, sometimes in the morning, sometimes in the afternoon, sometimes at night. Uh, they had her return after long, medium, and short absences, so it wasn't the length of time she was gone. In many cases, Pam simply decided when she would return home, something that was unknown to anyone caring for JT. And in other cases, even Pam didn't know anything about when she would be coming back. Instead, Sheldrake generated random numbers to determine the time, and he sent her a message on a beeper to tell her when it was time to start for home. All of this, the different lengths of the absences, the different times of day, and the last and the last moment in the moment decisions by Pam and the randomly determined times meant that there was no set pattern that JT could anticipate. They also put JT in different environments. Uh, sometimes it was Pam's parents' flat or apartment. Other times it was at her sister's residence. And sometimes JT was left alone in her own home. This meant that they'd be testing JT's abilities in different environments so that it couldn't be a unique quirk of a particular environment that let him know when Pam was coming home. And in the fact that nobody staying with JT knew when Pam would be returning meant that they couldn't give it away. They also had Pam travel in different vehicles, so JT couldn't get a clue from a particular vehicle uh, to predict her return. 
Afterwards, they had the videotapes of JT analyzed by judges who were blind, meaning they didn't know when Pam was going to return when they started watching the video. And they listed every time JT visited the window area, how long he spent there and what he was doing there, such as, you know, barking at a passing cat or sleeping in the sun. The purpose of gathering this data was to see how much time JT spent visiting the window when Pam was away, because, you know, it it wouldn't mean a lot if he spent the whole time at the window when Pam was away, or if he visited it every couple of minutes when she was away. It only suggests something significant if he rarely interacts with the window, except when Pam is about to return. So. What kind of results did they get? Well, the results were extremely significant. Uh, One way that they looked at the data was the amount of time JT spent at the window during three periods. The first period was the main segment of Pam's absence, and they called this the main period. The second was the 10 minutes before she started returning home. They called this the pre-return period. And the third was the 10-minute period when she was actually traveling home. They called this the return period. For the experiments where Pam decided in the moment when she would head back, only 10% of the time JT spent at the window was in the main period of Pam's absence, but 30% of the time he spent at the window was in the pre-return period, the 10 minutes before she started home, and 55% of the time that he spent at the window was during her return period. For the experiments where Pam was sent a beeper message at a random time telling her to come home, the pattern was similar. On these occasions, only about 5% of JT's time at the window was during the main period of Pam's absence. About 25% was in the 10 minutes before she started to return. And again, about 55% of the time he spent at the window was during Pam's return journey. So we can see that the time JT spent at the window is bunched up towards Pam's return. Only 5 to 10% of his window time happens when Pam isn't either returning or about to return. So it isn't the case that he would just hang out at the window or visit it frequently when she was away. Another method they used was looking at how much time JT spent at the window as Pam's absences went long. Uh, To calculate this, they divided Pam's absences into long, medium, and short absences, and they averaged how many seconds he spent at the window in 10-minute blocks. The pattern that we see is very consistent across all three lengths of absences. For the long absences, you see JT occasionally going to the window, but spending less than 50 seconds there until just before Pam comes home, when his amount of window time dramatically shoots up. For the medium absences, the pattern is the same. JT spends very little time at the window until right before Pam comes home when it again shoots up. And the pattern is the same for the short absences. There's very little time at the window and then a huge sudden spike when Pam is returning. Now, I mentioned that they also did a group of control experiments. Uh, These were to see what JT would do when Pam wasn't coming home. All of her other absences had been under four hours long because that was 
frankly, the length of the videotapes they had to record them. Um, So on 10 occasions, they had Pam either spend the night away from home or arrive home at least an hour after the four-hour window was over. So she's not coming back in that four hours or within an hour of that four hours. And what they found was very interesting. Uh, You see that JT does occasionally go to the window, but he never spends more than a minute or two there. And there is no spike at all on the graph. It just stays at the same basic level. So it's not like JT starts going to the window more and more the longer Pam has been gone. Instead, he doesn't really care about the window and doesn't hang out there unless Pam is on her way home. Sheldrake calculated the p-value of these results being due to chance was less than 0.000001, or less than one in a million. So that's extremely statistically significant. But there's nothing like seeing this happen with your own eyes. Or so the science unit of Austrian State Television, or ORF, thought. So they arranged to come over to England and do an experiment with JT for one of their programs. Here in this video, which you can see if you watch the video version of the podcast, Pam Smart discusses that. And back in 1988, I adopted a little terrier who I called JT. And I used to leave him next door with my parents in their flat. They noticed that he seemed to know when I was coming home. This happened whether it was in the morning or in the evening. It didn't seem to matter when I came home or how I came home. He always seemed to know. In early 1994, a friend gave me an article from uh, the Sunday Telegraph uh, wanting people to get in touch if they appeared to have dogs that knew when their owners were coming home. So I replied to the article and got in touch with Dr Rupert Sheldrake and then he contacted me and um, we started to do experiments with JT. Because, of course, I didn't believe that JT did this, but um, clearly he did. So we did about 100 detailed experiments um, on JT's behaviour. And we had to rule out routine. So we came home at different times. um, And sometimes I didn't know when I would be coming home. So there would be completely random times. And sometimes um, I came home in a taxi because we wondered whether he could hear my car. Or I would come home in a friend's car or even on foot. These experiments ruled out all the obvious explanations of JT waiting for me by the window at the time that I used to come home. It couldn't have been the routine. It couldn't have been hearing. So Rupert Sheldrake believed that um, because we'd ruled all these things out, that we were left then with JT picking up my thoughts and using some form of telepathy. In November 1994... The science unit of the Austrian State Television got in touch, ORF, uh, and they wanted to do their own experiment with JT. So they came across uh, from Austria with uh, two cameras, which they synchronised on their time codes to milliseconds. One camera stayed with JT and my parents in their flat, and the other camera took me off in and around Ramsbottom. Uh, and they'd film me intermittently during the day. And we were out for nearly four hours. And then I was sat down on one of the benches in Ramsbottom and I was asked, um, right, Pam, so do you think of JT now? We are going home. This is a time that we choose. And at that point, um, 
they, what you see on television is they split the screen and JT was asleep at my parents, at my mum's feet. And at this very second, well, five seconds into me being told that Pam, we're going home, JT gets up and walks across and takes a position up by the window where he waits for me. Now, parapsychology is a controversial science, so when Sheldrake and Smart's work with JT became known, it attracted the attention of the hardcore skeptical community. Pam explains... When the Austrian footage was shown on British television, the skeptic Richard Wiseman said it could be explained by hearing or routine um, and not telepathy. Except things like hearing and routine were the very things that Sheldrake and Smart had eliminated the possibility of by having Pam return at unknown, unpredictable, irregular times and by having her return in different vehicles and even walking on foot. So there was no familiar noise that JT could be listening for. So Rupert Sheldrake and I invited him to come and do his own experiments with JT Richard Wiseman came to Ramsbottom and did four experiments. He did three experiments at my mum and dad's and one at my sister's. And he got exactly the same results that we've been getting with JT. The data shows in the Wiseman experiments that during the main period of my absence, JT went to the window 4% of the time when I wasn't coming home and 78% of the time he was at the window when I was coming home, which replicated the experiments me and Rupert Sheldrake had been getting. So here we have an independent replication of the results, and by a skeptic, no less. When you look at the data from Richard Wiseman's experiments, they show exactly the same pattern that Sheldrake and Smart found. Wiseman did experiments with a long, a medium, and a short absence, and they show the same patterns as Sheldrake's data. With the long absence experiment, JT barely goes to the window until just before Pam's return when there's a sharp spike of him hanging out at the window. With the medium absence experiment, we also see JT barely going to the window and then spike before Pam's return. And with the short absence experiment, JT spends hardly any time at the window except the predictable spike before Pam's return. So Wiseman found exactly the same pattern that Sheldrake and Smart Smart did. JT didn't spend all his time at the window. He didn't visit it repeatedly for long visits, and he didn't visit it more often the longer Pam was gone. The spike was consistently associated with the time of her return and nothing else. But hardcore skeptics got a hardcore skeptic. And hardcore skeptics often don't want to admit that they found evidence for the paranormal, even when the data is staring them in the face. In 1997, on British television, there was a program called Secrets of the Psychics, where the skeptics tried to debunk anything paranormal. And Richard Wiseman showed the JT footage, claiming it was all coincidence and that there wasn't anything telepathic. JT is apparently an amazingly telepathic dog. 
J.T. the dog's telepathic talent was shown on the paranormal world of Paul McKenna in what was billed as a genuine experiment. Psychologist Richard Wiseman, one of the guests on the show, found himself wondering whether the story served up to the viewers was as remarkable as it seemed. So he set up his own experiment. We filmed him continuously over a three-hour period. And at one point, we had the owner randomly think about returning home from the remote location. And yes, indeed, JT was at the window at that point. What our videotape showed, though, was that JT was visiting the window about once every 10 minutes. And so under those conditions, it's not surprising he was there when his owner was thinking of returning home. These clips that Wiseman showed make it look as though JT was continually going to the window. And if we look at this one, we can see that JT is just reacting to some dogs walking past outside. And in these clips, which he was trying to use as a way of debunking, I am actually coming home, and that's JT reacting to me coming home. I was astonished and appalled to read headlines and stories in the British press with Richard Wiseman claiming to disprove JT's abilities. The Times... Psychic dog is no more than a chancer. Daily Mail. How JT's homing instinct came unstuck. The Independent. Pets have no sixth sense, say scientists. The Daily Telegraph. Psychic pets are exposed as a myth. Pam Smart and I conducted two series of experiments with JT. The first of a 100 tests was not filmed and the second series was filmed on videotape. The videotaped experiments showed very clearly the time course of his behaviour. When Pam was not coming home, he very rarely went to the window. When she was coming home, he was there most of the time. Averages from 30 different experiments are shown in these graphs. The last 10 minutes of the graph is the first 10 minutes of her homeward journey. It's shown with a filled circle. And uh, in every case, he's at the window most when she's on the way home. Sometimes he went to visit the window for reasons nothing to do with Pam coming home, like barking at passing cats or dogs. Uh, but we've shown all those instances in these graphs. Richard Wiseman's experiment showed essentially the same pattern as can be seen from these graphs. I pointed this out to him when we met in September 1996. Uh, but he paid no attention to what I said and never mentioned uh, my own research. A hundred videotape trials compared with four that he did at Pam and My Invitation. The reason he was so keen to debunk this claim is that he's a committed sceptic. He believes that psychic phenomena are impossible. And because they're impossible, then people who make these claims must be either foolish or fraudulent, and there must be some flaw in the experiment. In 2012, Richard Wiseman published a book called Paranormality, where he continues with the JT experiments and trying to debunk them, despite Rupert Sheldrake and I pointing out that his claims are completely untrue. And if there's one thing I've learnt, it's to be sceptical of the sceptics. And yeah, skepticism needs to be pointed in every direction, including at the hardcore skeptics who often can't admit what the data is revealing. Incidentally, in his book, Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home, Rupert Sheldrake reports that Richard Wiseman did eventually concede that his four experiments showed the same pattern as Sheldrake's 120 experiments. 
Also, the Sci Encyclopedia's article on JT states, In a 2009 podcast interview with Alex Sakiris, Wiseman conceded that the patterning in my studies are the same as the patterning in Rupert's studies. It's how it's interpreted. He added, So I say by looking at his data that, yeah, there may well be something going on, and argued for more rigorous research. So Weisman did concede that he saw the same pattern in JT's behavior, and he had to concede that there, quote, may well be something going on, close quote, meaning something anomalous based on the data. Of course, if pet telepathy is real, you know, it doesn't all come down to JT, and Sheldrake thus has done experiments with other animals. For example, they did another replication of the owner-anticipating experiments with a dog named Kane, and the results were the same. Kane was only at the window 1% of the time when his owner was away, except for the period when his owner was in the process of returning home. Sheldrake calculated the p-value of this being due to chance as 0.0002, or odds of 1 in 5,000. We won't go through that experiment in detail, but we will have a link so that you can read the scientific paper yourself. It sounds like we have some scientific evidence for animals being able to sense their owner's return, but how do we know this is because of telepathy? Couldn't it be some other form of ESP? In principle, it could be, and figuring out which form of ESP is behind a phenomenon is a classic issue in parapsychology. In this case, you could propose that the dog's ability to sense their owner's return is due to telepathy and picking up on their owner's thoughts as they're returning or about to return, or you could propose that it's due to precognition. That is, the dogs are picking up on information from the future where they see their owner's returning. It is very difficult to conclusively rule out precognition from ESP experiments, but in his book, Sheldrake does take on the issue of whether this could be precognition rather than telepathy, and he acknowledges that in some cases animals may be using precognition, but he thinks that telepathy is the more likely explanation for these cases. He writes, Could it be that dogs know when their owners are coming home because of a precognition of the actual arrival? rather than because they are picking up the thoughts or intentions of their owners? Perhaps in some cases this is so. But telepathy seems to me a more likely explanation when dogs respond at the time their owners are setting off or are simply intending to set off. Telepathy also seems a more likely explanation for the responses of animals when their people reach a crucial stage in their journey home, such as disembarking from a plane, boat, train, or bus. One way of distinguishing the possible roles of telepathy and precognition is to look at what happens when people change their minds. If they set off homeward and then the journey is interrupted, what happens? If the animal's response is precognitive, that is, if the pet foresees the person's arrival, it should not react when a person's journey is aborted. If it is responding telepathically, it should react to the intention to come home even if the person does not arrive. And as we heard earlier, there are reports of dogs responding when a person starts to come home and then getting confused when the person changes their mind. That's more suggestive of telepathy than precognition. It sounds like we have scientific evidence for the ability of some animals to predict their owner's return. Do we have evidence for other forms of telepathy among pets? 
We do, and we're going to look at two cases of that. The first involves a set of dogs that were owned by a woman named Jan Fennell. Jan Fennell has seven dogs. Since owning one as a child, Jan believes that animals are telepathic. With these, they tend to know. If I'm going to walk them, they are wound up, excited, running around, making a noise, really generally letting me know they're ready. Jan has agreed to take part in an experiment designed by Rupert to see whether her dogs are telepathic. She placed a video camera in her conservatory and locked the dogs inside for quite a few hours each day, while she remained in a different part of the house, out of sight. At random times throughout each day, Jan thought about taking the dogs for a walk. After ten minutes of just thinking about it, she would actually take them. The video recording of their behaviour during these ten minutes could then be observed. One time I was upstairs putting some curtains up when I decided to take them for a walk. Had checked them beforehand or fast asleep. As I came downstairs, I could hear them. I didn't have to look. I could hear them making a racket. In five out of the seven tests, Jan felt that her dogs had definitely reacted to her thoughts. What Jan's experiments show from the video recording is that the dogs don't get excited when she's not planning to take them for a walk. But when she is planning to take them for a walk, even though they can't see her, even though she's in another part of the house watching the television, for example, uh, they seem to anticipate her intention. So experiments have also been done on what's kind of the opposite of dogs anticipating their owners coming home. Instead, it's on the owner's intention to take the dogs out of the house, in this case for a walk. And in five of the seven trials they did, Jan Fennell's dogs seemed to pick up on her intention to take them for a walk. They were lazing around the house and even sleeping uh, before she planned to take them for a walk. And then, despite the fact she was in another part of the house and wasn't visible to them, they suddenly wake up and get excited about the upcoming walk as the camera recording them revealed. What's the other experiment with pet telepathy that you want to discuss? The experiments that we've looked at so far involve dogs, which can't talk, but some pets can talk. And so we're going to look at one of those now. Parrots are famous for their ability to mimic human speech and repeat things that people say. In fact, the name of the bird has even given us a verb in our language. When one person repeats what another says, we say they're parroting that person. But in recent years, a lot of research has been done on parrot speech, and scientists have discovered something that many parrot owners already knew. Parrots don't just repeat human words and phrases randomly. They can use them appropriately and in context. They can even creatively form simple sentences to communicate what they're thinking, uh, sentences that they haven't just heard people say and that make sense in context. And they can learn hundreds and even thousands of words. So they have a really impressive language-using ability that can be trained to approximate that of a two- or three-year-old human child, only with better pronunciation and mimicking abilities than a small child has. Unsurprisingly, given what we've discussed in this episode, parrots seem to be like dogs and cats and appear to display telepathic connections with their owners. For example, Deb Whitebread of Missouri City, Texas, reports that her family's African gray parrot, whose name was Rocket, uh, would anticipate the return of her husband, Ron. 
She says, Ron taught Rocket to say hola when he comes in the door. Then I noticed that Rocket would start saying hola about 10 minutes before Ron came home. It was not like he could hear his car or anything like that. Ron works a crazy schedule and comes home at different times. I used to have to call him to see when he was coming home. But now, I just wait for Rocket to tell me. He does this on a regular basis. Of course, anecdotal stories like this need to be put to the test under controlled conditions. And now a new person enters our story. Her name is Amy Morgana, and she lives in New York State. After hearing about how advanced Parrot's ability to learn language can be, she started training an African gray parrot named Inkisi to speak. And she trained him the way you would train a human child, by using words repeatedly in sentences. Like teaching the word water by saying things like, Do you want some water? Look, I have some water in this class. By the time Inkisi was 12 years old in 2010, the year we made contact, uh, he had a vocabulary of about 1,500 words, though it was smaller than that when they actually did the experiment we're about to talk about. Um, That experiment happened because as she trained Inkisi, Amy started noticing that the bird seemed to know what she and her husband were thinking. He would say words connected with things they were thinking about, even though they hadn't said those words out loud. And Inkisi couldn't visibly see what they were thinking about. She reports, Inkisi regularly comments when we are thinking about eating, going out, or taking a shower. Even if we are sitting quietly in another room, and he sees no body language and hears no audio cues. At these times, he'll say, for example, you want some yummy? You got to go out. See you later. Or you want to take a shower? Once I was thinking of calling Rob and picked up the phone to do so. And Nkisi said, hi, Rob, as I had the phone in my hand and was moving toward the Rolodex to look up his number. Another time we were watching the end credits of a Jackie Chan movie edited to a musical soundtrack. There was an image of him lying on his back on a girder way up on a tall skyscraper. It was scary due to the height, and Nkisi said, don't fall down. Then the movie cut to a commercial with a musical soundtrack, and as an image of a car appeared, Nkisi said, there's my car. Nkisi's cage was at the other end of the room, behind the TV. He could not see the screen, and there were no sources of reflection. And once I was in a room on a different floor, but I could hear Nkisi. I was looking at a deck of cards with individual pictures and stopped at an image of a purple car. I was thinking it was an amazing shade of purple. Upstairs, he said at that instant, Oh, wow, look at the pretty purple. So Amy contacted Rupert Sheldrake, and they decided to test this under controlled conditions. Sheldrake explains, As a result of this, we decided to set up a large-scale controlled experiment. And in this controlled experiment, we had um, over 100 totally different photographs selected by a third party who was given a list of key words that NKC says. So we asked somebody else to pick images corresponding to a list of words we gave him uh, that the parrot knew and seal them in envelopes and then shuffle the envelopes and number them. So they were in a random sequence. Nobody knew what was in each envelope. Each one contained a different picture that Amy and I didn't know about. In these experiments, we then uh, put uh, 
Well, Amy, we had two cameras um, with time codes on them. One camera filming the parrot continuously. The other one in a basement room with all the doors closed, so that it was a soundproofed room uh, in which Amy was filmed on camera, opening these envelopes one by one and looking at each one for two minutes at a time. There was a beeper to tell her when the two-minute period was over. And then after the parrot, of course, didn't know she was doing this and um, received no feedback. So uh, we then got three independent people to transcribe the tapes, uh, and the transcripts agreed very well. And we've analyzed it all statistically. The results are fantastically above chance. I mean, the odds against chance are thousands, or even millions or billions, depending on the method you use, uh, to one. These are staggeringly significant uh, telepathy results. What I'm going to do, the parrot didn't get it right every time. Sometimes it didn't say anything. Sometimes it spent the whole time of the test shouting to Amy to call her back because it didn't like her leaving the room. It said, come back, come back. Why are you growly with me? Because it thought she was absolutely annoyed with it because she'd walked out of the room without, uh, for no apparent reason. But in the others, uh, in many of the others, it did say exactly what she was looking at. I have a videotape here which shows some of these experiments. Now, this has uh, hardly been seen before. Um, I think this is one of the first public showings of this in the United States. And this um, video is rather hard to believe at first, because what you're going to see is the parrot speaking. We have subtitles which illuminate what the parrot says, because it's not always clear to people. It should be clear to you, but it was made mainly for British audiences. And because the parrot hasn't... <laughs> <laughs> the parrot has an American accent, so... What year was this done? This was done in 2000. So in this experimental setup, Amy is about 55 feet away from Inkisi. She's in the basement on a different floor of the building, and she has the doors shut. She also doesn't say anything during the experiment, and even if she did, Inkisi couldn't hear her and get clues about what she's looking at. Inkisi also can't see anything where Amy is, so he can't physically see the pictures that she's opening and taking out of the randomly shuffled envelopes, and he doesn't even know that he's supposed to read her mind and say what she's looking at. Of course, unless he reads her mind and figures out that's what his job is. Um, I also want to say a word about the transcripts that they had made. They used three different people, two Americans and one British person, to make three different transcripts of what Nkisi said. And the people making the transcripts were blind, meaning they did not know what pictures Amy was looking at. They're just listening to Nkisi. They're not seeing the pictures. So uh, since the transcribers were asked to judge what Nkisi said, I'll refer to them here as judges, which is a standard term that's used for those who were asked, usually blindly, as in this case, to evaluate the data uh, that results from an experiment. Now, here are several clips of what Nkisi says when Amy opens several of the envelopes. And for the benefit of our audio podcast listeners, I'll tell you what the picture is and then repeat what Nkisi said according to the experiment's judges. So in the video version of the podcast, you see a split screen. Uh, Amy is opening an envelope and looking at a picture she takes out of it. And on the other side of the screen, we have Nkisi verbalizing as she's doing that. So first, 
Amy opens an envelope that contains a picture of a flower. From now on, all the words you hear are the parrot. So in the time that Amy is looking at the picture of the flower, Inkisi was heard by the blind judges to say, you could put the take your flower. See you later. We've got to go get picture flower. Yeah, you're better. And you get the pictures flower. You may go take a picture flowers. You got to go get camera. Put the flowers on now. I got to put some picture flower. That's a pick of flower. Look at pick little flowers. Yeah. And you can then hear the timer beep to tell Amy to open another envelope. In the next clip, Amy opens an envelope that contains a picture of a couple, a woman and a man, walking down a beach in bathing suits. And the blind judges heard Inkisi say, look at my pretty naked body. <laughs> look at my pretty naked body. And <laughs> yes, that line always gets a laugh. Now, Amy opens an envelope with a picture of a man talking on a phone. And here the judges heard Inkisi say, your phone, what you doing on the phone? And he also makes noises that sound remarkably like an old fashioned answering machine beeping. The next picture shows a man on a sidewalk uh, talking to a man in a car, um, a yellow taxi cab. And the man in the car is sticking his head out of the car window to talk to the guy on the sidewalk. And the guy in the car is also pointing as if to give with his hand, as if to get, give the guy on the sidewalk directions. This is obscure. It's only, we have a close-up, and you'll see what's going on. There's a guy's head out of the cab window, and that's what Amy was actually looking at when the parrot said, you put your head out. Here, the judges heard Inkisi say, that's so cool, you put your head out, la, you put your head out, oh, careful, you gotta put your head out. And in this final clip, Amy is looking at a picture of a man sitting down with a woman behind him, putting her arms around him as if to give him a little hug. And the judges heard in Kesey say, oh, that's your hug. Can I give you a hug? Your hug? 
And remember that the judges were completely blind to what Amy was looking at. So what they heard in Kesey say was in no way influenced by the pictures. The matches between what's in the pictures and what they transcribed in Kesey is saying is due purely to the audio of the parrot speaking. Sheldrake concludes. Well, as you see, this is sort of really off the end of the scale of anything else that's happened. Um, and there are quite a lot of parrots that respond telepathically to their owner's thoughts. There are probably no others quite as advanced as this one. There are many parrots that know when people are telephoning and who call out who's about to telephone before they phone, or parrots that know when people are coming home and actually announce by name the people who are coming. So this is a, a fascinating area of research, and it's one that's just opening up at the moment. We'll have a link to the paper that Sheldrake published about the experiment with Inkisi. Overall, Amy looked at 131 images, and Inkisi said a keyword associated with that image in 71 of the trials. In the other 60 trials, Inkisi was either silent or didn't say any of the keywords that corresponded to the image. Non-scorable utterances of Inkisi were generally attempts to contact Amy or references to other events that had happened that day. I was impressed by how conservatively they scored Inkisi's performance in the paper. The pictures had been selected based on words that they knew Inkisi understood. But if Inkisi didn't say a keyword associated with the image, they didn't score it as a hit. For example, for the picture of the guy in the car giving directions to the guy on the sidewalk, the word they were expecting was car, but Inkisi didn't say car. Instead, he said, you put your head out, you put your head out, oh careful, you gotta put your head out. And the driver of the car did indeed have his head out. But because Inkisi didn't say car, they didn't score this one as a hit. But despite this conservative scoring, when you analyze the data, they got p-values of 0.00025 and 0.00002, which would be odds of 1 in 4,000 or 1 in 5,000 of being due to random chance, and on a quite conservative system of scoring and p-value calculation. Before we leave the reason perspective, let's ask a couple of general questions. First, from the reason perspective, why would animals develop telepathic abilities? Well, for the same reason that animals develop any characteristic. If a characteristic arises in a different species and gets passed down to its descendants over the long term, it's because it confers an evolutionary advantage. It confers some kind of benefit that will help the animal to survive or reproduce. For example, in his book, Sheldrake writes, The context for anticipatory behavior is the way that many dogs welcome their owners home with great enthusiasm. Unless they are well-disciplined, they try to jump up and lick their owners' faces, just as puppies greet their parents, with their tails wagging so vigorously that the whole hindquarters become part of the movement. Wolf greetings are similar. When cubs are weaned, they start soliciting food from their returning parents, or other members of the pack. When the adult approaches with food in its mouth, they crowd excitedly around, wag their tails, assume gestures of submission, and jump up to lick the corners of the adult's mouth. In adult wolves, the same kinds of behavior develop into ritualized greetings. Most attention is directed to the highest-ranking animals. 
So the greeting behaviors that wolf pups do with their parents are part of how they solicit food. Uh, that behavior has been passed on to dogs, and that's that instinct is part of why dogs greet humans by trying to leap up and lick us in the face, even though the dogs are not expecting us to release food from our mouths when they do this. The instinct to greet others in this way is still there. But if you're a wolf pup and this is how you get your food, then you can see how it would help you survive if you can sense when the adults in your pack are coming home so that you can be there and be ready to get fed. Wolves are also pack hunters and being able to use telepathic anticipation to coordinate the members of your pack would be a definite survival advantage. Fundamentally, telepathy would represent a form of communication. And if you think about it, that could be really useful for a species, especially for species that don't have language to communicate with. Uh, such species could have an evolutionary incentive to develop telepathy even more than a species like ours, which has robust language using abilities to fall back on instead of using telepathy. Are there any other reason perspective issues you'd like to consider? Yes, I wonder about the factors that could affect pets' abilities to establish telepathic connections with their owners. One factor seems to be the sociability of the animals. Dogs and parrots are both very social animals. Dogs naturally live in packs and parrots naturally live in flocks, so they are highly social animals. And pets like JT and Inkisi both perform really well with their owners. On the other hand, cats are not as social, and although they are reported to sometimes have strong connections with their owners, they aren't reported to do so as often. And there are solitary and unfeeling animals like reptiles and stick bugs that usually don't get reported as having telepathic connections with humans. But I wonder how long an animal has to be domesticated and whether that may also play a role in pets' abilities to read their owners. For example, dogs are apparently the first animal that we domesticated. The process of domesticating them from wolves seems to have begun between 20,000 and 30,000 years ago, so they've been living alongside of us for a long time. By contrast, according to some estimates, sheep were domesticated around 11,000 years ago, cats were domesticated around 10,000 years ago, horses around 6,000, and so on. I wonder if it might take time for a domesticated species to learn how to read humans this way. If so, then the longer an animal has been domesticated, the better they could form telepathic links with their owners, in which case dogs would have a marked advantage over other animals. On the other hand, if they're all, they've already learned to telepathically link with other members of their own species, then they might just be able to plug and play with humans by incorporating us conceptually as members of their species or their pack. And it may not require time for them to learn how to read humans. That could be the case with parrots, which are not a domesticated species. We haven't been keeping them in our homes for tens of thousands of years. Whether the length of domestication thus plays a role in this is something that we'd need further research to determine, and research on animal telepathy has only just begun. What can we say about pet telepathy from the faith perspective? 
Well, for a start, the, there is no church teaching on human telepathy. So there's certainly not a church teaching on whether animals like pets have telepathic abilities. That's a question for science rather than faith. There have been Christian philosophers and theologians who have expressed opinions about telepathy, though, and one of them is St. Thomas Aquinas. He believed in what you could call active telepathy, which is how he thought angels communicate. The idea is one angel would actively reveal its mind to another, and the other then learns what that first angel is thinking. This would be different than what you could call passive telepathy where one angel could pick up on the thoughts of another angel that is mentally passive, that's not actively trying to send thoughts. Aquinas thought that passive telepathy was impossible, and I've always thought that the reason he gives for that is lame. Uh, We can talk about that more in a future episode, but Aquinas has a Bible verse that he thinks rules out passive telepathy, And he's simply not understanding the verse correctly. He's misinterpreting it. So I think he's rashly dismissed the possibility of passive telepathy. In fact, we have a good bit of scientific evidence for passive telepathy in humans, which we can also talk about in a future episode. But in this episode, we've heard quite a bit of evidence for passive telepathy with animals. In the experiments we heard about, the humans were or may have been trying to use active telepathy. You know, Amy Morgana was actively trying to send her thoughts to Nkisi in the photograph experiment. And Pam Smart may have tried notifying JT when she was coming home during the, the experiments about her return. But this wasn't the case with all the spontaneous experiences we heard about. In every case, people initially noticed that their pets seemed to be picking up on their thoughts when they were telepathically passive, you know, when they weren't trying to actively send their thoughts to the pets. That was the case with Amy Morgana before the experiment, who noticed that in Kesey seemed to be picking up on her and her husband's thoughts without them trying to send to Nkisi. And that was the case with Pam Smart, who definitely wasn't trying to send to JT and who didn't even believe her parents when they told her that her dog was anticipating her arrival. And that was the case with how all the other people learned about their pets seeming to display telepathic abilities. It arose in situations where humans weren't actively trying to send their thoughts to the pets, and so that would be evidence for passive telepathy. Anything else we should say from the faith perspective? Well, in episode 203 on Animal Afterlife, we discussed the classic arguments for the idea that animals don't have an afterlife, and I concluded that those arguments are unpersuasive, and I pointed to evidence that we have that at least some animals do have an afterlife. Uh, We don't know whether psychic functioning is also linked to having an afterlife. It could be that you could use ESP even though your consciousness goes extinct at death. But if you need an immortal soul in order to be able to function psychically, then the evidence for pet telepathy would be another argument for animals having an afterlife. So, Jimmy, what's your bottom line on pet telepathy? I think that the spontaneous experiences that people report of their pets seeming to read their minds are impressive, and I understand how these experiences could lead pet owners to think that their animals 
really do know what they're thinking on some occasions. But we can't look at spontaneous experiences as proof because pets are often very attentive to their human owners and they may pick up on cues that their owners don't realize. That's why we need scientific research on pet telepathy in controlled settings where you can eliminate the normal cues that the animal might use. This research has only been done in the last few years, but the results have been quite impressive. As we saw in this episode, JT the Terrier and Nkisi the African Grey Parrot were able to perform really impressively under controlled conditions in situations that seemed to go way beyond random chance and that seemed to exclude any normal, non-psychic way of them getting the information they apparently had. But as always on Mysterious World, you can make up your own mind. And Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listeners and viewers? We'll have a link to Rupert Sheldrake's book, Dogs That Know When Their Owners Are Coming Home. Also, um, the Sci Encyclopedia article on Rupert Sheldrake. Another Sci Encyclopedia article on JT and pet telepathy. We'll have a link to a 1998 paper on JT for the Journal for the Society of Psychical Research, a, a year 2000 paper on JT for the Journal of Scientific Exploration, another year 2000 paper on the dog Kane, who they also did a replication with from Anthrozoos, a 2003 paper on Inkisi from the Journal of Scientific Explanation. We'll have a link to the video of the Austrian television test of JT, also uh, information about Richard Wiseman's failed debunking of animal telepathy a 1996 telepathy in dogs BBC segment and uh, the talk uh, that Rupert Sheldrake gave concerning the Inkisi experiment, a major clip from that. Excellent. And now it's time to hear from you. What are your theories about pet telepathy? Does your dog or cat seem to know when you or someone in your family is coming home? Have you had other experiences when one of your pets seemed to know what you were thinking? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page, sending us an email to feedback at mysterious.fm, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, visiting the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special thanks to Dom's wife, Melanie, and his daughter, Isabella, for helping us with the readings today. Also want to say thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work they did on this episode. And if you're uh, an audio podcast listener, I'd really encourage you to watch the uh, video for this episode at my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Jimmy Aiken, because there's nothing like seeing split screen with Pam Smart being told time to go home and Inkisi wakes or uh, JT wakes up and goes to the window or, you know, seeing Pam Smart looking at a picture and hearing in seeing in split screen and hearing exactly what Inkisi is saying is you can see the visual situation. Um, so, you know, do check out uh, the video version of the podcast and you can see what Oasis Studio 7 does. Uh, they're available for hire. So if you have video animation and editing needs, be sure and contact them. Also, while you're at my channel, I am 
trying to grow it. And you can help with that. Um, if you like, comment, and subscribe, then that tells uh, YouTube that you found the video engaging and that other people might find it engaging too. So it'll show it to more people. So just by liking and commenting and subscribing, you can help the podcast and the channel grow. And be sure when you subscribe to hit the bell notification so that you always get a notification when I have a new video out, whether it's Mysterious World or one of the other videos I produce every week. Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Next week, we're going to be looking at a longstanding rumor regarding the Vatican. The rumor is that the Vatican has been connected with a machine known as a chronovisor that would let you view any point in history anywhere in the world. Essentially, it was a, a time scope or time television. And I'd always dismissed this, but I recently learned there was more to the story. And so we're going to be learning about the highly respected Italian priest and exorcist who says that he worked on the chronovisor and who was the one who announced it to the world. Fascinating. Folks, be sure to share the podcast with your friends and write a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast from. That helps us grow this community and reach more listeners. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 298. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Great Lakes Customs Law, helping importers and individuals with seizures, penalties, and compliance with U.S. Customs matters throughout the United States. Visit GreatLakesCustomsLaw.com and by Rosary Army, featuring award-winning Catholic podcasts, rosary resources, videos, and the School of Mary online community, prayer, and learning platform. Learn how to make them, pray them, and give them away while growing in your faith at rosaryarmy.com and schoolofmary.com. And by Tim Shevlin's personal fitness training for Catholics, providing spiritual and physical wellness programs and daily accountability check-ins. Strengthen yourself to help further God's kingdom. Work out for the right reason with the right mindset. Learn more by visiting fitcatholics.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. Can I have a kiss? Okay. <laughs> Can I have a kiss? Hurry up. Okay. Can't ring you. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> If you've enjoyed Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com secrets.